Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Additionally, in this episode, my friend Lars Doucet joins us as a co-host. Well, Matt, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing well. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Yeah, I taught in the in the classroom uh, grades 7 through 12 uh, for 12 years as a social studies teacher so variety of topics from government to American history world history economics um, and so you know I just love to teach and uh, make try to get people to be curious um, because once people stop becoming curious I feel like that's when we kind of have problems <laughs> uh, and also the, my broader, goal, the idea that I'm most interested in, um, you know, it's kind of my mission, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it, is to increase empathy in the world. So whatever I can do to do that, um, and often I find myself just like thinking of ways where I can trick people into learning social studies. That's like, uh, and, you know, when I say increase empathy, I mean, like, I'm team human. Like, I... No offense to any other species of animals, <laughs> but uh, whatever we can do to keep uh, humans around on, on this planet, that's what I'm pushing for. So that's, I mean, that's what social studies is all about, like how we all get along so we can survive as a species. So, Matt, Matt, you said I'm something already, very... I'm already talking too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no this, this, we want you to talk a lot today. Okay. Um, Matt, you s- said something really interesting there, and, and that's you, you want to increase empathy. I, how, do you, how do you think about going about it, doing that? Is it like telling people stories uh, about the past, about different people, to kind of you know give them some kind of – help them form a theory of mind about what other people are going through? Is it something else? Yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. Um, but the the stories can't just be of you know the familiar. They have to be of of what's not familiar. So like I mean I think back I think back on my own childhood and I had a pretty sheltered existence. Like uh, I wasn't able to travel much other than like kind of like maybe a, few, a couple states over stuff like that. Um, I I grew up in a small town with wasn't very ethnically or religiously diverse. We'll put it that way. Um, and so once I kind of, I graduated and I went to college and I moved to other places and I was like, oh, wow, there's a whole new world that I was missing out on. And it made me a better person, like the more different types of people I met and uh, it made me become more open-minded and just, yeah, like less, my ego started to shrink. <laughs> um it's still a problem, but uh, with the ego. <laughs> but yeah, so I, that's my goal. It's like you expose people uh, to as many different um, cultures, ideas as possible, um, and hopefully they will they'll learn to uh, accept um, that there's other ideas. That doesn't mean any of them are the best. It's just like you know, there's different ways of going about things. So, absolutely. 
Well, when you when you are going about trying to teach someone something, you know, I, how do you 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 give them that information so that it sticks? You know, we talked about empathy, you know, you know, imparting these stories, but how do you actually create a story or or, or like transfer information in a way that uh, a year down the line p- people still kind of remember it? Well, that's why I've always been drawn to video. Um, that's how I've always learned best. But it's multimodal, which means like. It's not just visual, it's auditory and, uh, you know, knowing when to put text on the screen or uh, the fact that our attention spans are so short. So knowing uh, every 30 seconds or a minute, you've got to do something that's not related to whatever you're trying to teach that's just entertaining or engaging in some way. (laughs) Uh, I learned these tricks in the classroom more than anything. Uh, And before that, before I taught, actually, I... Um, I'm in a band called Electric Needle Room, and I learned like when you're on stage playing gigs, you, there's certain things you got to do to keep their attention. And so, yeah, it's really mostly about manipulation, all of it. It's just like, <laughs> tricking people into st- still like, okay, you're still listening to me. Like, yeah. So, so how does that how does that play out in like a classroom setting, like like physically mm. when you when you don't like? It's easy to you know make a slick cut and well easy you know, quote unquote, <laughs> not actually easy. But like, I mean, if you have enough time ahead of time, you can cut together a slickly produced video. But how do you do it live without props or anything like that? Just a bunch of rowdy, impatient kids. I think it starts with building that relationship. So I always made sure that I spent at least the first two weeks of every semester, not really trying to teach them much content, just getting to know them and having them get, get to know me and under, having them understand that I cared about them as human beings. And I think once they realized I cared and I respected them, then it was easier to teach them stuff that maybe they weren't so excited to learn about. So then after the two weeks, you know, it's, uh, I think the main thing I, I call called it chunking, but I never did something, uh, I rarely did something, uh, more than 15 minutes at a time. Um, also, you know, if I'll, I'll admit it, I played some of my own videos in the classroom, but, uh, so if I play one of my own videos, like it's a 10 minute video, um, then the next 15 minutes, we're going to have a discussion or we're going to have like a, some kind of back and forth that I, I lead. And then the next 15 minutes, it's going to be student centered where they are exploring something on their own. And you just kind of, and you're you're never doing the same thing on, on the same in one day either. Like I feel like a lot of teachers, uh, they kind of get. I mean, I, I don't blame them for this because it's a tough. It's one of the toughest professions out out there. But you know, you kind of get into a groove where you're you got a formula basically. Like a lot of especially math. math no disrespect to math teachers, but you know, a lot of times it's like okay, the lesson 15, 20 minutes. Okay, and then now you're going to practice these problems. The next uh, 45 minutes uh, and then that's class. And then next class, we'll go over the homework, maybe the first five, 10 minutes. Then I'll give the next lesson and you'll do the problem. I mean, it's the same thing over and over and over. And that's what I hate that crap. So <laughs> it's it's actually kind of interesting. So um, to kind of draw a personal connection, I am a video game developer and I actually started my career in educational game design. Oh. And you want to talk about a cursed field. Mm. <laughs> was um, educational game design. But one thing I was, uh, I, th- I think is, is kind of interesting to share with you is that it wasn't cursed for the reasons you think. Like everyone knows like 
most educational games suck. But like as someone who's like been there and is proud to say I made one that like I, I think is actually kind of fun as was ages ago. It was like my master's thesis. Um, what was most surprising to me was it was difficult for all the reasons I didn't expect. And it was because of essentially like institutional barriers. You know what I mean? Like if I wanted to make an educational game, the people who would essentially let me do that like inserted themselves into this process that made the whole thing like kind of fall apart and be like sort of toxic. And so I think coming, you know, transitioning back to like kind of you here is like you're in school, you're everyone loves to crap on teachers and on the public school system. Like everyone has some complaint about education and it's so easy to do when you're not a part of it, you know, as someone who's a part of it and is proud to be a part of it and is, is makes it work, you know, um, what can you say about, the various institutions and they're not all monoliths, right? Like I was dealing with like grant committees and universities and that kind of garbage, which is only tenuously connected to what your, your contact with it. But like, can you talk about the institutional side of education and, and how you make it work for you or, or not, you know, just like what, what your a contact with it has been? Yeah, it, it, it is frustrating. Like I think about, I think when I, was trying to build lessons and I was trying to like incorporate standards. Uh, a lot of times there's a disconnect there. What, what school boards want. And then, you know, and not just, I mean, yeah, you think about what school boards, just if you want to pick on them, the vast majority of school boards are made up of just not even parents even sometimes like, but most of them are not educators. And so, and then you have government officials who have never been in the classroom as well. But everybody thinks they're an expert, as you kind of uh, hinted at there, because, oh, well, I went to school. I went to public school, so I know what's going on. Um, but I think the main thing that a lot of people don't realize is teachers do still manage to have a lot of freedom. And I think that's why it's really appealing as a profession, because you are allowed to be creative. And I've always been somebody who's like, I just let me try to build something on my own or let me just have a little f freedom to uh, see what works and what doesn't. And a lot of those lessons I've made did not work, but, uh, I think that's where the disconnect is because there are so many variables, like even at the same school, like even class to class, I'd have one class come in, some, a lesson would totally work. And then the next class that came in, it would be, it would flop. And so you just have to always be, <laughs> calling audibles and adjusting. And whenever you talk about a monolithic system or institution, they can't handle that. They, they have no clue. It's so you, you do have to just trust your teachers who are trained professional professionals, kind of like you, tr you trust coaches. Like um, I've been watching Ted Lasso a lot lately. So I don't know if you guys have seen that, but man, what an inspirational show, but that's really what it's all about in terms of like, there's a certain point where you just have to let them see what works best based on all the different uh, unique circumstances they find themselves in. Cool. So one thing I wanted to segue into, you know, with your background as a teacher and your interest in like these old subjects and try and find ways to like make kids interested and excited about them. I wanted to draw this into one, one of the big things that drew us on the uh, drew you wanted the pod for us was you recently made this big video about Georgism. Now, Will and I are, you know, we'll, we'll just out ourselves for anyone who hasn't been paying attention. We're, <laughs> we're pretty big Georgists. We're very interested in the topic. We've done a lot of research ourselves on it. Um, we're very curious about, you know, um, 
How did you first get interested in this topic? How did you first encounter it? And what, what drove you to make this video? And um, how do you feel about what kind of impact it's had? My viewers got me into it. I had no idea what it was. I'm embarrassed to say that. I, not until like three years ago. I uh, Because, you know, I, I have a freaking master's degree. I It's not in economics, but still, you think I would have came across Henry George all these <laughs> years and I, I, maybe I did, I just wasn't paying attention. But yeah, I just, I was like, what's up with all these, like, especially teenagers and 20 somethings that are passionately into this guy and his ideas. And so I finally just like gave in. I'm like, fine, I'll, I'll make a video. And and it forced me to uh, buy Progress and Poverty and read it for myself. And yeah, it holds up pretty well. It's pretty accessible. It's I was surprised because, you know, usually you think of 1800s books, not they're usually horrifying. <laughs> and if, yeah, you, if you he, just have a mucusless diet, then you will, will, will not suffer <laughs> from consumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I... I don't know, though. It's amazing. Um, I guess like the more I learn about it, the more I realize like or the more I, I guess I'm confused why more people don't like the ideas. I, I mean, I I hinted at this in my own video. I, I mean, I I know there's kind of more obvious reasons why powerful people would not want it to succeed and, and you give it a go. But uh, powerful people, that's a minority. You know, like the majority of people, I think, would actually find his ideas appealing. And so it's quite fascinating to me how, you know, you had someone who was once mainstream, who essentially now is like so obscure that. Yeah. But, you know, it's changing. Thanks to folks like you, I guess. Right. Well, it's interesting. If you want to, we can turn this into a little classroom discussion here because I'd be very interested in your thoughts on my kind of take the answer to that question of like, what what happened, you know? And yeah, yeah. What is your take? Yeah. So my take is a couple of things happened. And I think it's important to have that perspective of history. And if we zoom back to 1879 and the late 1890s, right, around the time he died and the turn of the century, the 20th century hadn't played out yet, right? And right. a couple of two really important, the 20th century was dominated between the struggle of capitalism and communism, right? That was the big conflict. And that conflict didn't really even begin to like <laughs> resolve and have a final word until you know the late 80s and then it just seemed like okay well now we have the answer right like reagan style thatcherist capitalism has won that's the answer we're done end of history moving on and then oh <laughs> uh it seems there's some, some 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 problems that are cropping up so so ideologically my first answer is that i think those two struggles like first it was world war one and world war two just like captured everyone's attention. And then after like democracy versus fascism was temporarily resolved, then it became capitalism, which aligned itself conveniently with democracy and totalitarianism, which, which conveniently aligned itself with communism. You know, there was that struggle. And then after that happened, you know, um, the other thing lying on behind it was that George's argument has a lot to do with this whole notion of like the margin of productivity, which is basically like how far out you have to go before you have to pay anyone rent. Um, so to speak, and the automobile was invented and was yeah. popularized. And that allowed us to expand the margin of productivity um, very 
vastly. And so I think my two answers would be, and I, if you got some pushback, I'd love to hear it, is the ideological struggle between capitalism and communism sucked up all the oxygen. And secondly, the automobile allowed us to kick the can down the road for a good century. Um, and of course, there were plenty of costs to that, you know, with um, the environmental cost alone and all these other issues. Um, and I think now we've kind of, we fought the big ideological war. So now people are like, well, are there any other ideas anybody has? And then also we have, you know, like we can't sprawl out any further without going insane. And so now we're starting to mm -hmm. kind of like, uh, like, like, like we've, we found that can we kicked and that's, that's kind of my thought. Do you have a reply <laughs> to that? I think that I, I think I mostly agree with that. I mean, the, the most common uh, comment on my Georgism video that I noticed so far, that's kind of, cause I really want to know what I want to hear from the critics and they're, I think a lot of people are not critics because they're, they're just ignorant. They just don't know anything about it. Um, but I, I did get some people who were like, well, what about farmers? Like, you know, they, that's what, that's literally the land is all they have and that's how they make a living. So how do we make sure that they are uh, taken care of? So what's your, yeah, what's your guys' response to that? So we write that for this group blog called Progress and the Progress and Poverty Substack. And so we're working on an ag article right now. I'm not the author. I'm not one of the co-authors, um, but I, I've been kind of keeping in touch with them. There's a couple answers. The first one is that agricultural land is not super valuable today. Like land value tax is mostly going to target urban land rather than farmland. You know, it, it's like hyperbolically like you, you visualize it in 3D and there's this giant like to the moon you know, asymptote in the city center. And then as you go out to the farmland, it's it's like down there. So first of all, land, it's not land area tax. We're not going to tax you by the acre. We're going to tax you by the dollar. And it's it's the mm -hmm. it's it's the urban land that's really valuable that we really care about. Um and then the second one is if you want to get into ag policy, it's re it's kind of a nuanced like technical argument, but um a lot of stuff when it comes to ag is a lot of people say that it's like, okay, well, we need giant agribusiness because no one else can feed the world's population. And, and giant agribusiness is more efficient. But the, whenever someone says efficient, you need to say efficient at what, right? You know, like the whole global supply chain has been optimized for efficiency, but not for like resiliency. And we saw that with COVID and the supply shocks we have now is it's like you're super efficient, but one thing goes wrong and you're screwed. And so maybe a global economy needs to be built more like a spacecraft rather than, you know, um, an evil Knievel rocket. And um, so with agriculture and especially the thing they're efficient, being efficient for is labor. They're trying to get the least amount of labor per unit of food produced, like make food as cheaply as possible, ignoring externalities and paying people as little as possible per unit of food. But they're not economizing on land. They're very wasteful of land, right? And so they have all this automation and all these inputs of chemical fertilizers, and they'll even like erode the value of the land over time with runoff and all these other problems. Water, very inefficient uses of water, um, which mm -hmm. which George would consider land in, uh, we can get into that sense, the different kinds of land, renewable versus mm -hmm. non-renewable resources and blah, blah. But that's kind of the argument is that it's like, yeah, giant agribusiness is efficient in terms of not paying people, but it's very inefficient in terms of resource use and land use and negative externalities and pollution. Like you can make more food per acre with um, lower scale permaculture than you can 
in the current situation. And the argument is that land value tax would reform even agriculture more towards that. But I mean, we haven't even gotten into farm subsidies and Iowa and corn and all of that, which are very distortionary. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's and, something I'm strongly against, actually. And that's maybe it's more controversial. But, you know, I, I, I do think it's when we talk about governments picking winners like and losers, essentially, that's like. How is that capitalism to right. me? Like, I, I never understood that. Like, uh, we don't have capitalism as Ricardo and Smith envisioned. Like, <laughs> it's like it wasn't ever meant to be, oh, Elon Musk is able to start this uh, company because he has like a small loan of whatever it was, $50 million to get started from, yeah. from subsidies. Like, he's literally... a. I mean, it's a crony capitalist 101 whenever he says, oh, I built this. No, you didn't. It's taxpayer money that built that. But right. Yeah. I So that, yeah, I, everything that we've you've said, it just makes it even more appealing to me. And I'm glad that you, <laughs> you guys are passionately. Yeah, fighting for it, because it seems although J.J. McCullough, though, doesn't see he thinks it's dopey. I was messaging him. <laughs> Better uh, convince him. You got to get him to make a video on it now. I I, I sent him an email and um, oh, did you? I, I sent him an email. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll I'll tell you what I told him. Um, let me let me pull it up here. I'm not gonna <laughs> like dish on anything he told me, but I'll tell you what I said to him. Um, he, he he received it politely. You know, he he seemed interested. Not sure if he was just being nice to me, but I said, you know, hey JJ, my name's Larcy Say. I'm a longtime fan of your show. You know, I loved your video on social credit movement. Um, his, his argument was basically that like Canada, the biggest landowners are provincial and federal governments. Canada is very bare and very empty. So like the government already owns like just vast tracts of land. So they should be able to do all this kind of policy. Like what would they even do with it? And that's a very good point he brings up. And I pointed out that like the American West is basically the same situation. Like the government owns, yeah. I think like 84.5% of the land in Nevada. Right. You know, and like, what's it going to do with it? It's like anyone wants some desert. You know, but nobody, li nobody lives there anyway. So I don't see the problem. Right. 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 It's like there's still plenty of other land like that. 15 percent. A lot of people there. Right. And that's, and so that's, that's the thing. <laughs> is it's like it's like, yeah. So the thing is, it's, it, it's kind of I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think it was this kind of like notion of like land area versus land value. It's a land value tax. Right. We're going to tax like the land value tax is going to tax the vacant land in Las Vegas. And who cares about the land in Gerlach, Nevada? Like I actually pointed out. It's you don't even count it, right? It's not even counted. Yeah. Like it's you got to think of it as something separate, right? right? Yeah. You could you could even like I mean right. it, it falls off the asymptote so fast that you could almost forget about it, right? You know. So in in uh, and another thing I pointed out to him is that Canada actually has a history of land value tax in Vancouver. Vancouver used to have uh, Georgia's land value tax policy, and they like funded themselves entirely off of it for years and years. Wow. Um, Christopher England, he wrote this whole amazing history of Georgism. It was his um, master's master's thesis or PhD, I can't remember, but it's this great article, and um, he has got this whole treatment on Vancouver's history, and uh, sadly got repealed in a tax revolt. We can talk about why they did that and how we can avoid it in the future. But um, Vancouver now has this horrible housing crisis as a as a consequence of getting rid of their successful land value tax policy. Um, and so, you know, that's what I, what I said to, to JJ was, um, the other thing I pointed out to him is it's like, now the other issue JJ is like, you've often done videos about natural resource policy in, um, Canada, you know, you're talking about the Canadian conservatives and like, I forget which regions like really big into oil and whatever. Um, I pointed out that land is not just 
it's not great rhetorically that George said this, but he treats natural resources as land and that's kind of confusing. But you can do George's policies with natural resources even if there's no land value tax in sight. Yeah. There's a country that does this and it's Norway. I'm a Norwegian citizen. And um, Norway, their hydropower system was set up by Georges 100 years ago on explicitly Georges terms of the people own the water. So we should make sure that any monopoly resource rents that come from its So that's why all the oil money goes to the fund, the yes. public fund? And they okay. do that too. And Alaska does something similar. You know, but so, yeah, so dividend, oil dividend. Yeah. Yeah. What's really cool about Norway's petroleum system that came 50 years later. And so they had this model with hydropower from like the early 20th century to follow. It was explicitly set up by Georges. It was an Iraqi immigrant who set up Norway's petroleum management system. And he came in um, because he was scared of the resource curse, if you're familiar with that as a social studies teacher, which for the sake of the audience is um, you have these resource rich countries. And they, yeah. they just turn into these terrible like hellholes, honestly, because um, it means that the government has a way to get cheap money without investing in people. So they don't have to create a diversified, educated populace. They can just like sell oil and run guns or whatever. And um, and so mm -hmm. what this Iraqi immigrant says, like, I've seen what happened to Iraq. This was like back in the 70s or 60s, I think. I've seen the resource curse there and I want to save Norway from it because they just discovered a crap ton of oil. And so he's like, yeah. here's what you do. You charge a severance tax on the extraction of the oil, but you heavily subsidize its exploration because people are like, oh, if you tax severance taxes of oil, windfall profits, no one will drill for oil. Well, Norway contradicts that. They've been doing it for 50 years. They're super advanced. What they do is it's like, hey, you want to find some oil? We'll subsidize you. We'll help you with your R&D. But the passive extraction, that's the people's resource. So you got to pay rent to the people on sitting on that oil lease. And that makes it so... What you want to discourage is it's like, here's all these government oil leases. I'm going to sit on it and wait for the price to go up. A, to exclude my competitor from getting it. And B, wait wait for a day where there's a better price, right? Oil's not going anywhere. And so Norway's found this great way to do this public-private partnership that avoids the failures of the American system, which is very privatized, and the Venezuelan system, which is just total, total capitalist socialism, where you lose the private industry expertise, um, that's my mm -hmm. stump speech. You don't have to buy it. You know, you can go go see if it stands up. But that that's what I sent to JJ. And so I said, even if you don't like this land value tax idea. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't too long. He probably just like locked yeah. it out. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I do come on a little strong. We'll see. But he replied and he said, thanks. I found it interesting. So we'll, we'll see. So there, there's natural resources and then there's land value tax. You can do either. You can do both. Um, but the advantage of the natural resources is there's more examples of those um, than maybe even the LVT. Yeah, I love I love what Norway is doing. Uh, that's it. When I did my Norway video a few weeks ago, that was something. I mean, it's just like it, it's one of the few countries that got it right, and it, it's amazing that other countries are just not all trying to copycat it. And, you know, <laughs> and now look, I mean, look at Norway, one hundred percent non-renewable essentially. They're all going to be driving EVs, like literally all of them within 10 years. Yeah. I mean, it's they're they got their own thing. Like, and the it, rest I, of us are yeah. I, not even attempting to play catch up. It's it's amazing. What's it's interesting to me is when I when I talk about Norway, maybe you get some of this, too, because you're bigger than me and you've got like a big YouTube channel. Is when I talk about Norway, everyone comes out with the excuses of why there's nothing to learn from them. All. They're a small country. Yeah, that's yeah. the that's, biggest that's one. The, what everyone goes with. The first my <laughs> reply to that is like Norway, if it was an American state, would be like 24th by population. So, you know, also the, it like anytime I hear that, like. You can scale up literally anything, and 
what do you think corporations do? Corporations are very efficient. That's literally like economies of scale. Hello, like it's it it can be efficient at scale. That's so. Whenever I hear that, it's just ignorance. I, I get so tired of that. <laughs> I think what I people know. are getting into when they say that is they're they're responding, and I think honestly to American national political gridlock. So it's like you uh, want like because the, the the scale thing is important, you know, because Norway, for instance, is not a member of the EU. Um, that's kind of a technicality because they're still like subject to a lot of the same trade treaties that effectively puts them kind of in the EU. Um, but it's like it's a small sovereign nation. I mean, they've got a straight up king. I mean, not that he has much power. I mean, but like like they're a small little <laughs> country that like does what they want. And like I'm sure I'm like two or three degrees away from the prime minister at best without even like looking just because like I'm sure my mom knows a guy who knows him or her. I I, I can't remember like. It was a her last time. I haven't checked up after the election of who's currently in power. But like, um, but like American politics, like how many degrees away am I from a Joe Biden? Probably a lot, right? And then like that dysfunction is so huge. I think that's what people are responding to. And I think we've like lost well, the notion that we can do bottom-up politics in America. Like do any state a, I, I get also the argument that federalism in the United States is unique in terms of you got 50 states that all have different policies and you, you can't... It is hard because like you look at um, FEMA, for example, one reason why FEMA is a so ineffective as a federal organization is because they got 50 different states doing 50 different things. And they're trying to figure out, oh, what do I need to adjust for this state versus this state? Like, like you look at Texas response to hurricanes versus Florida response, and it's way different. So I don't blame FEMA or I, it's understandable to me why FEMA just sucks at helping people out right. yeah well matt that, that that brings up a really really interesting point here some of the things you've been talking about uh you know you're a student of history um do you think political polarization particularly in the u.s is it cyclical or you know is it just increasing on this like is it going to get worse and worse and worse does it like peak and then it come back down oh, what's your sense of that just just looking at the past can we learn anything from that of course we can <laughs> we can learn a lot for the past dad government. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it is somewhat cyclical. I think the difference, I mean, I've had many people ask me this, like, do you, do you think that we're more divided now than ever in the United States and in, in all of our history? And I say yes, other than obviously the 1850s and the Civil War. Uh, this is true. We are uh, more polarized than any other point other than right before the Civil War. Um, the unique situation now is uh social media that's really all it is we don't need to complicate it it's we have insulated ourselves into little communities where everybody agrees with us and it's when you sometimes venture out of those communities um that's only when you know how much like how tribalism has gotten out of control because like you if everybody just stayed in their little bubbles all the time, you wouldn't notice it. But occasionally, like on Twitter, like what happened today when I tweeted something that was kind of cool, though, about my audience is I do get a, a quite a, a big net, uh, politically speaking. So I love that. But yeah, you get um, tribes that interact sometimes and they're not used to interacting. Let's be honest. They're, they're just not like they don't even know how to interact. They've lost that ability 
And a lot of it is, yeah, because they don't interact in person. They don't even see each other in video. Like, at least Discord is helping with that these days. I, I've, I noticed with Discord, a lot of them hop on the video chats and at least audio so they can hear tone of voice or they can see body language. Whereas if it's just back and forth on Twitter, oh, God, like, what a nightmare. And that drove politics the last 10 years. Like, it, you'll notice it's got really bad beginning uh, in the early 2010s. That's really when things... Um, it's not a coincidence. It's not correlation. Correlation. It is causation, in my opinion. Right. That so that's caused or so we got to get beyond social media. <laughs> so social media. So so is it? Would that predict that it's not a uniquely American phenomenon because everyone's using social media, right? Like is is uh, I mean, would you say every country is suffering from this, or are we uniquely suffering it because of additional things America throws into the mix? I think I think most countries are suffering from this right now. We did. Here in the United States, we don't like to pay attention to other countries, but if you look at everywhere around the world, it's happening. Like, uh, take India, for example. Like, it's some of the back and forth. And this is like some of the nicest folks I've ever met through my channel are from India, but you see them going back and forth on politics, and it's like, wow, this is familiar. So, I don't know. Like, everything I've noticed, this is a worldwide phenomenon, and I think the only reason why we haven't seen more... Um, I guess disruption in certain countries is probably because of the, you know, less freedom, more totalitarian. Um, maybe there's a, a monarchy that kind of is that unifying force that we don't have in the United States. Like, you know, maybe even in Norway. I don't know. Like maybe that the head of state when they're the monarch, that's, I guess, an argument for the monarchy, which I, I personally am against. But I understand when you have a head of state who um, is just born into that position, that can be a unifying thing for a country. So maybe that's something. I'll go on record as being a an, an extremely limited monarchist. Of I'm I'm pro Norwegian monarchy <laughs> and anti almost all others. Um, just <laughs> just, just yeah. like I'm, I'm like Schrodinger's monarchy. Like when I'm there in America, go. I'm like a hardcore like little R Republican in the sense of anti monarchist. Um, Reasonable, but. Uh, a lot of that's just the history of the Norwegian monarchy is that it's, I mean, they're not perfect, but they're like one of the most well-behaved monarchs, monarchies. They're so short-lived too. They've only been around like barely more than a hundred years. Their original, like when Prince Carl came over from Denmark to become, like he was elected by plebiscite. Like the people chose to have mm -hmm. a monarchy when, you know, um, in, in the early 1900s when we finally got our, our independence, um, but what's um, interesting yeah. about the whole social media thing and polarization is, I mean, one thing I think in America that makes things worse is like they're all like, at least on the conservative side, which I have more like, like I grew up and I made a bunch of liberal friends, but I grew up in conservative Texas. Right. And one thing I've learned is we're all like stuck in the suburbs. Right. So not only are we with, with the social media, are we all talking to each other online? We're also like not meeting anyone in person all that much. And I saw what like happened to like, teenagers and kids during the pandemic when they're all locked up too. So do you think like just the lack of face-to-face -face in our physical lives contributes to it uniquely in America or, or not? I would say maybe a little bit. I, I don't know. I haven't thought about that uh, maybe enough. So I don't know. What do you think, Will? I feel like we're talking, like we're leaving out of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. No, no, no. I, I, I think it's a, it's a real challenge. I, I do wonder how much of our political polarization is driven by... I think social media play, definitely plays a part, but also 
Uh, I wonder if, you know, lower economic growth, it, it's more it, mm. it's more systematic of something like that where the, the pie is not getting bigger as fast as it was pre-1971. There's less to kind of divvy up. And so then you get you kind of fight harder because it's more zero sum or something like that. Yeah. I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? And do you buy into any of these stagnation arguments about what happened since 1971 with cost disease and and our inability to build new infrastructure? Yeah, man, you put it a really well. Well, I've never put it that way. It's a good way to put it with the pie analogy. I like that. I, I always just say, well, growing uh, extreme wealth inequality. But a lot of people, they kind of, especially at a, a more conservative economically, people are like, no, wealth inequality is good. We want wealth inequality. <laughs> like, uh, but yeah, so we wealth inequality is uh, inevitable. You're right. The pie has not grown as big as it needed to be since the 70s. Uh, I was born in 1981, and pretty much my entire life, wages have been stagnant. Only recently have they gone up. But guess what? Inflation. Guess what? <laughs> yes. So it doesn't even matter. <laughs> Yay. So, and then it's, one, it's funny. I was also, um, I know I mentioned Ted Lasso. Here's another reference to uh, this time a movie. Uh, I was watching Dazed and Confused the other day. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> Dazed and Confused? Yeah. Yes. Like I watched it. It's been a long time, but I watched it again. I was like, uh, and it's interesting. It was made in the 90s, but it, it's about, what's going on in 1976. And wow, what a fascinating year that was. 1976, the year my dad graduated high school, that almost, you could make an argument that that was peak America. Like that, I looked up the inflation year rate that year, it was like 4% or 4.5%. It was reasonable, it wasn't out of control. So that was one of the few non-stagflation years. But also that was back when people still, uh, you know, there was more of a partnership between public and private um, where you had, I mean, sure, there was this distrust of the government, but that was a good distrust, like, you know, distrust of corruption, good. But there was still like a safety net in place. There was still, um, I'm not saying I'm I'm not a, a big fan of income taxes. You guys know that, but probably, um, but at least the, the wealth inequality was at the lowest it had ever been and you didn't see this desperation that you see today that has slowly been growing since the 70s. It's it's bad. It, I mean, I, I don't know, like, and it's frustrating to me because like the 10% of the country, of maybe the entire Western world that's doing really well, they tend to kind of, they're the ones who are in media, like mainstream outlets. And so they, I feel like they're just so out of touch all the time of what's like, you know, so I think a lot of, a lot of people need to be more, a lot of the problem is the people that are really struggling, they're not visible because they're always working. They're working three jobs. They don't have time to like, just go start a podcast and everybody's going to listen to (laughs) it. (laughs) So that that, that kind of brings us back to what you're saying about empathy is that it's like, how can you make good policy if you're not even aware that there's a problem. And then if you are aware that there's a problem that you've classified those people as, is not mattering. Yeah, no, I, and I've been very lucky in my life, but, um, you know, now I make more money doing videos on YouTube than I did teaching, which is another really messed up part of our society. The fact that that even happens, but I feel like a responsibility now, especially cause I like, I mean, I was the thing that, I like I love the most about teaching was the relationships and 
I think uh, a lot of our relationships are hurt right now because of these other things that are beyond our control. Like, so we, I think we need to find ways where we can uh, become more connected, uh, not social media, but (laughs) better ways than that. And then maybe that um, the progress will follow after that. Um, Not, not an easy task. Yeah. Matt, Matt, you, uh, this this reminds me of a really interesting question. I, I think large, you actually may have come up with this originally, but you mentioned earlier you were talking about you know crony capitalism. Um, you know we've been talking a lot on this podcast in one way or another about monopoly and the nature of monopoly, whether that be land or or or, or other things. Um, but you know when it comes to be being a YouTuber, you know how do you feel about platform monopolies? Do you think they have too much power? Do you think we should do something like that about that? Or because uh, you know, if you want to put a video on the internet, YouTube is kind of the place to go. There's not really another place. Now they didn't build that by. I, I don't think they did super anti-competitive practices. They might have. I don't know. Um, but but it was kind of just just naturally formed. Uh, how should we think about YouTube as a plat and, and all these big social media platforms? Because they all they do have some ne- negative effects, perhaps. And there's some things we've talked about. In this podcast so far yeah it's it's hard for me to hate on youtube too much because they are very fair to their creators like they give a higher percentage of revenue compared to nearly every other outlet out there um but you're right like they kind of control the market and tiktok kind of was kind of a threat to that but then now we're finding out that with youtube shorts that's taken off and and so tell us about that. Yeah. yeah. YouTube shorts is like, they just, YouTube just announced, I don't know if you saw the news, but they had like 1.5 billion views on YouTube shorts alone last oh month. And so I've yeah, seen in your videos, like your YouTube shorts get like way more views than your other videos. That's why I'm making more and more of them now. I'm just like, oh, okay, guess I better do this now. But I, it's, it's still, I mean, yeah, I do feel trapped sometimes and I would like to um, maybe go in a different direction, but I know the YouTube algorithms will not like that so much and not recommend my videos. So I'm kind of, you know, I'm the YouTube president's guy because of that. Like I feel like I have to, I'm obligated to make at least one president's video every month now because that's the video. Those are the videos that do well. And that this is how I make a living now. Um, And so, yeah, it is problematic. And I get like, there's some censorship going on. Private companies can censor. Yeah, I get it. However, um, you know, I I am a firm believer in antitrust uh, legislation and regulation, which we haven't seen uh, as much executive action on that in recent decades. Like we always hear of like, oh, Teddy Roosevelt. And after that, like uh, all this trust busting that happened a um, hundred years ago. But then in recent years, it seems like a lot of that that does not pan out. I mean, uh, so maybe I would like to see more active um well it needs to happen uh in the judicial system but yeah we need to see more antitrust uh action going down speaking of monopolies and stuff i I have an interesting theory i'd like to see what you think of it it has to do with you know the struggle of the 20th century was between capitalism and socialism which very naively was put as like free enterprise and like decentralization versus like like central planning right top down yeah you know but what's interesting is sometimes what's pitched as one is 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 not what you actually receive you know if you have one company that (laughs) just dominates an industry and that's like the whole industry at some point you've got central planning and all the inefficiencies that comes with it because it's Mm -hmm. like 
Well, well, the customers will just take whatever I tell them. I have no pressure from a competitor to get off my duff and like fix this glaring problem that I don't have to worry about because I've, I've got a good gig running and where else are you gonna go? Um, and so like my theory is basically that as something accretes more monopoly power, it starts to look a lot more like a central planner and have the failure modes of a central planner. And I was wondering if, if you agree or disagree with that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I do cringe at the uh, false dichotomy of uh, communism and socialism supposedly on one side and capitalism on the other. It's like, yeah, but in reality, like we know how it all turns out. It's it's nothing. I mean, it, that the way I taught economics is um, kind of what you were hinting at with, you know, you do have a spectrum. On one end, you have a command economy, which I think the closest thing we have to that today is North Korea. Uh, where it's top down completely as far as major economic decisions. On the other end, you have a totally free market economy. Um, but hello, nobody, no country has a market economy. That's absurd. Like we're all mixed economies, like on a spectrum. And so, and you think about, yeah, what you were saying too, the, uh, okay, maybe if you have a market, a free economy, uh, then you're going to have this, this a certain um, corporations just get so powerful that they it becomes inefficient. I get that. But at the same time, we always forget that a lot of these corporations get powerful through the help of government because they get subsidies, because the they regulatory capture. And because, I mean, they the governments just let these companies buy out. The, like, look what Facebook did and YouTube, did, Google did with um if they had a competitor, they bought their competitor. And th this trend continues to this day, like Facebook just buying Instagram. And we all just are okay with that, apparently. Like, And even though like our dissatisfaction with both Facebook and Instagram has only gone down ever since that. So I we, we just put up with it. But the, the fact is that government along the way, they're always like... They're helping out whoever already has power. And the reason why they help out whoever has power is because it helps keep them in power. It's really that simple. Now, we can we can, we can get all depressed about this and just get <laughs> super sad. But yeah, as, a, as a teacher of history, you know, it's not like America has never been able to like unscrew itself, right? I mean, you said it's it's like people's like, the most polarized we've ever been since the Civil War. I mean, that's kind of a big caveat. Like, we forget this country literally tore itself apart in one of the bloodiest like wars on this continent. And, you know, we, we, we ended one of the most horrifying problems we had of slavery. I mean, its legacy continues in many awful ways, but like we freed the slaves, we fought a war and we we're not two nations now. Like we're one nation. We're, you know, so like, I wonder if you want to talk about some of your favorite times America has come back from the brink of problems. It doesn't have to be the civil war, but you can pick that one if you like, you know, are there any, like your, your favorite problem we walked back from whenever, when it seemed all hope was lost. And how did we do it? Yeah, I would say um, there's probably four examples that pop in my head right off the bat. And that is um, the very beginning of the Republic uh, when we had uh, we fought this war against an imperial power and we could have easily just had a monarchy ourselves. Uh, but instead, we'd go with a republic of. Uh, actually have a little bit of democracy and no king um, representatives who are just there for a little bit. Most, yeah, like it was kind of crazy, the, the first of its kind. And um, 
so that was my first example, like, especially with the Bill of Rights, like, where it's like, it's strictly like an, a middle finger to the government saying, no, these are our civil liberties, don't touch them. So, and then the second, I think, big moment was after the Civil War, the Reconstruction, early Reconstruction with the Radical Republicans, when they were able to kind of, when they still had a super majorities, they were able to get like major legislation. Like the 14th Amendment, I think, is the most important part of the Constitution um, in terms of, well, after after the, the Bill of Rights, I should say, like obviously the First Amendment's a pretty big deal, but... Um, so the 14th Amendment, get, getting that passed and 13th and 15th as well. And, you know, sweeping civil rights legislation um, and then jump ahead to uh, I would say this is kind of a, a kind of a, an appeal to conservatism, actually, where after World War One, we actually saw a bit of somebody on the left who was kind of running things more authoritarian, I would say, with the Woodrow Wilson administration and with World War One, like become like all around the world, you saw like essentially um, authoritarian governments rising, and then and ultimately causing all all. The, I mean, the war itself was a big a big reason for that. And then, but after World War One, you saw like a reversal in many places, especially the United States, where it's like we're gonna um, we're gonna go back to where we were. Like it ain't no thing, you know. We're gonna. Uh, reduce the power of the presidency. We're going to, uh, Congress is going to not spend so much money and, and just chill out. And yeah, it kind of backfired and led to the Great Depression, but you know. <laughs> and then the fourth moment is uh, the 60s. Um, you know, you had essentially a New Deal coalition, as they call it, where you had just much of the social safety net, the welfare programs that most Americans um, do approve of that still exists today that um, were really were built during that decade. Um, so I think that's another. So, yeah, I think it, when it happens, it happens very quickly. Right. And I think we're going to see it. We're, we're overdue for it, actually, because we have been living since the seventies in a conservative age. We've um, it's funny to me, like when Elon Musk uh, tweets out like that, Oh man, like I'm the center but everybody, we're just gone so far to the left with the woke agenda. I'm like, what are you even talking about? Like, maybe you're, maybe he's talking about certain social things, I guess. But in terms of economics, we've gone clearly to the right, like way right. And so I think we're kind of overdue to kind of shift further to the left, at least with economic issues. That's that's the way I see it. Matt, I'm curious. You mentioned some some interesting things there. Is there is there a sense in which? Um, this this kind of libertarian critique of American government has become more true over time in the sense that we were able to do, you know, get to the moon in like nine years. You know, we did Manhattan in like three or four years um, with these huge infrastructure projects. Like we, we built the Pentagon in 16 months, like all these these really crazy mm -hmm. like state capacity, you know, ability, the American government was able to do a lot more things a lot more efficiently. Now we have trouble, you know, putting together websites and in any reasonable amount of time and just all these kinds of problems. It, it, it just seems to work much less well. Uh, what's your, is it your sense that American government does work less well? And if so, um, why do you think that is? That's a good question. I, yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of why libertarianism has been more appealing in recent years because we've seen like <laughs> the thing. First example I think of is like the Obamacare website being launched and it being a disaster. When, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I get it. I I'm very critical of um, 
government programs because a lot of them are inefficient. But that doesn't mean that government can't get stuff done. And one thing that the government is good at is paying for stuff. And that's so that's another thing like that's why I'm a big fan also. And I don't I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I, I like UBI. Like, I really think that would be something to really bring prosperity because you're you're skipping over all the the middlemen, like the bureaucracy. You're just going. And I yeah, like with the Pentagon being built so quickly with you mentioned the Manhattan Project and all these big things. When you think about big things, a lot of times it's not that many people that are really doing it. it it's a small group that's so and also like, again, this has been a theme of this episode, I think that public private partnership like um, GPS technology. That was government. That was literally like th our cell phones that we take for granted, like, oh, where it knows where we're going. That wouldn't exist if it weren't for what government, the small group of people within the government did. And the internet, but, right? Yeah, the internet, the entire internet. Yeah, they created the internet. Like, it's a, and I don't know, when we think of, people like have this misconception of uh, innovation. They just always assume that it's only the private sector, that we have all these like inventors going around. Like, no, like a lot of times it takes investment. It's really, it's the capital. And that capital a lot of times comes from um, taxpayer money. Let's face it. Makes sense. Tying a previous thread back to a previous thread, you know, talking about like, can change happen? And then also um, your YouTube channel. I've seen, and maybe you mentioned this, but I saw a couple of your YouTube shorts about ranked choice voting and approval voting. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but we did a podcast recently with, um, with Aaron a, Hamlin. Yeah, he, Aaron he Hamlin. He runs the Center for Election Science. He's been very successful at oh, implementing approval voting in a couple right, of like, cities. Like I've worked with them before. They're a great organization. Nice. Yeah, he, he's been out just like getting it done, which has been really interesting to me. You know, we interviewed him about like, how do you do it? Like, how much does it cost per voter for you to like succeed? And like, and, he, and he's just like going through and just like reading it off. So what do you think of approval voting, ranked choice voting? Tell us which one's your favorite. And if you think it can help depolarize America. Oh, absolutely. It can help depolarize us. That's that's the way forward. That's I'm a big a fan of voting for reform. Um, I think I had another viewer, actually a Patreon supporter, that they turned me on to star voting, um, which is essentially a combination of approval voting and ranked choice voting. Just For, for the just, audience, that's single transferable. Uh, automatic runoff. That's right. Gotcha. Yeah. So. I mean, the bottom line is I like all of, all of those are good. Like I, I, my favorite is star voting, but second favorite is rank choice. Third favorite is approval. All three are amazing. Um, score voting gets a little tricky, but I still think that's, it's still solid too. Like, and I get why people say approval voting is a little bit like they could lead to um, certain like shenanigans. Okay. But look at the shenanigans we have now. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And it, it, all of them would make us less polarized. That's all a, of them. And the thing you just said, I want to jump off of that. It's like, look at the shenanigans we have now. Often when talking about policy, I often feel like someone always compares it to like the most perfect thing ever. You know, when when what it should be compared to is what we've got now, you know. And so yes. like when, when I'm talking about like land value tax policy, like I think like a lot of people forget that we already have property taxes and we could reform those property tax systems one little step towards land value tax by just exempting all the buildings and collecting the same amount of value without having to change any laws. And I was wondering what your thoughts on 
like one step better than the status quo as as the goal rather than compared to some perfect utopia and that's why we can't change anything ever yeah i'm totally that's my my philosophy you got to be I, th I think i believe in gradualism and in pragmatism and coalitions and compromise that's it it's not flashy but and then sometimes it is going to be dramatic like i was hinting at earlier i think it's gonna we're gonna see a lot of reforms happen all at once but uh, the bottom line is we've got a conditional society. So that's why I'm, the Center for Election Science, uh, yeah, they do great work because they're doing the right thing. They're going to all these local localities and, and reforming. And that's really like what we all should be doing. We should be going to city council meetings and uh, we should be going to school board meetings that not yelling at them, but just listening and, <laughs> and uh, being more active. I have I have been given a lot of hope lately by the YIMBY movement, which stands for Yes in My Backyard. And these are mostly people who are. Ah. Are you familiar with that movement much at all? No. Uh, oh, I'm intrigued though. You are you're you're it's your lucky day. So I hate NIMBY. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. YIMBY <laughs> is is the opposite. So it's it's um it comes out of the market urbanism kind of movement. Um and so basically, like you said, those local school board meetings, well, especially in California and certain other cities that have like really acute housing crises. Like every new development has to go through like a request for public comment for like a zoning variance, like approval. And the NIMBYs all show up and tend to like shout them down. And so there's been this burgeoning grassroots movement of, of YIMBYs who are the opposite, mm. who go and like push for, no, we actually need housing because we're never going to get cheaper housing unless there's more housing, regardless of like, and if you want to make it government subsidized, whatever, if you want it just be market rate, it doesn't, whatever. Yes to all of it. We need more. And um, they've, they've had some victories, like they've passed some California laws even. And of course, YIMBYs are not always like explicit Georgists, but they're clearly like natural allies. And so we're, we, we always try to help mm -hmm. them with what they're trying to do and, and um kind of share things with them. One of their big moves is against, um, is repealing zoning laws, which I'm not oh, sure if you've done yes. a video of on zoning or yet, but there's a really great book by another previous podcast guest we had on, M. Nolan Gray. It just came out. It's called Arbitrary Lines. And it's this whole okay. history of American zoning, where it came from and like how it's explicit. Zoning was explicitly a segregationist tool, both in the racial and in the economic sense. And he just goes through all the legacy of it. And it's been real. It's been really eye-opening and fascinating to me. So, um, just if you need some grist for the grist mill, yeah, I've read uh, Strong Towns, and I've, I'm familiar with that movement. Um, and I, what turned me on to that was YouTube channels, uh, like Not Just Bikes and uh, Climate Town, and yeah. So shout out to all of them. Like I, they've got me more aware of zoning. That's really, and it's funny because like a lot of people don't bring it up. They they still don't like. Uh, as far as the housing crisis, like John Oliver just did a big thing. I didn't hear him mention zoning once when he was talking about rising rent prices. Like, right. There was, there's a disconnect. So yeah, we just need to keep shouting yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I saw, I saw Oliver's videos. It was really interesting because like he said, I mean, he, he said a lot of things like tenants need more protection and like, we need to like pass laws, to, like keep renters from um, being exploited. And, and I'm, I'm for all of those things, but there wasn't like, it was just kind of like treating symptoms. It wasn't getting at this root cause of where, well, where does the power come from? Like if landlords right. have to compete for tenants, they're not going to be able to abuse them as easily. And you're not going to have to like pass laws and, and kind of beg them not to mistreat people. Um, but so like the YIMBY movement is, is something that, that gives me a lot of hope because they've had some success. 
you saw the Reddit F cars subreddit come out of nowhere <laughs> and they're all really into urbanism. Um, what's interesting about zoning is it seems like this like really kind of boring topic. Most people's only like contact with it from my generation is from SimCity, which from the lens of a game designer, I now see is like this insidious, like pro old school zoning propaganda. You know, you literally can't mm. do any city action that's not zoning. Right. That's like the only thing yeah. you do in the game is like do zoning and balance budgets. But to ask you a question here is you mentioned that there's all these young people who got you introduced in Georgism. That's kind of interesting because it's, it's this 19th century movement. Old guy with a beard. <laughs> seems like only history professors would know about it. Tell us about all the ideas young people are sharing with you. I mean, about Georgism, urbanism or, or anything, you know, and, and what, what, whether that gives you hope or not or what. Oh, it gives me so much hope. Like, that's a big reason why I got into teaching, period, is because younger people, um, they're still idealistic enough and they have great ideas and a lot of them are smarter than the older people. Let's, ad I, let's admit it. Like, uh, And so I'm just so inspired. And uh, there are so many examples of, I mean, a lot of my video ideas these days come, are, are they start out as a, a comment underneath one of my videos. Um, and I, that's why I have a list of a thousand videos to make it, That's okay though. I, yeah. So, um, I would say like a lot of my audience is actually fairly young. A lot of them pretend to be older, you know, like the, I think you have to be 13 to have an account, but they, that's yeah. Great. And so I like, I've had some super fans, when I say super fans, I mean, they found my personal information and reached out to me and it was a little creepy. Uh, their parents found out. Don't worry. But like, they're brilliant, though. And and I'm just like, wow, if I was w where you're at now when I like I was an idiot when I was a kid. So I think uh, we should kind of end on maybe on this optimistic tone because younger folks generally are pretty, pretty smart. One, one last one. And then we'll let what you go here is. I wonder if one of the things that's different for young people today is it's so much easier to find old information. You know, like I've seen like like my 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 nephew will like be like all into a bunch of 80s music. And I was like, I didn't even know like what music my parents had because like I couldn't play like their records in my CD player. <laughs> and now you have access to like the entire world, you know. And so like, do you find young people getting interested in old ideas because it's just easier to hear about them now. And, and, you know, I mean, you're particularly in the history field. Yeah. And I think the difference though, is they're, they're actively seeking it out. They're curious. They, and they want to find stuff that no one else has found because like it's currency, it's social currency. They're like, I know something no one else does. And so, yeah, that's, that's where it starts. But I think, uh, and then sadly people my age, like I'm 40, I, a lot of people my age have stopped being curious and when they go to the internet, they're going to their safe spaces. They're to stuff they already like. And so that, but you can't, yeah. Like, so it's almost like you notice that all the, the, the new great memes, they come from like some 15 year old, they don't come from <laughs> like, and they, and by the time Nike catches on to it, it's five years later. So um, we need to listen to them. And uh, yeah, they have access to everything and they know how to find it's all. It's all. Yeah, that's another difference. Right. When I was 15, I uh, I had dial up Internet. Um, I didn't even have it at my house. I had to go to my friend's house to load up a page that took like 10 minutes just to load it up. So 
That's the difference. It's all there. They've Times had it change. access to information and they're also willing to to go search and that's great. Yeah, that's great. And talk about it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all, for all you've done for for all your videos, for all your outreach. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Mr. B, we, we really appreciate you you coming on the show. Where can we send people? Where can people find you? Yeah, if you just search Mr. Beat online, you'll Google will say, did you mean Mr. Beast? And you say, no, no, I meant Mr. Beat, B-E-A-T. <laughs> and, and so that's where you'll see probably my YouTube channel will pop up first, but I'm, I'm also on other platforms. So that's great. <laughs> Thanks, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Great conversation. <laughs> Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.